James Baldwin said, I am what time, circumstance, history have made of me, certainly. But I am also much more than that. So are we all. I'm Jay from Push Black, and you're listening to Black History Year. So no matter what laws change or how much progress they want us to believe we're making, racism only evolves and makes it even more necessary for us to get creative in the fight for our liberation. That means we've got to take back our stories. We've got to take back our narratives. But how does that look? When they deliberately erase black folks from the narratives that shape our identity and the very core of who we are, what happens when we tell our stories? What possibilities arise when we revise white revisions? Today's guest is gonna help us understand. Dr. David Eckard is a professor of African-American and diaspora studies at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. An artist and award-winning author of four books, his work centers black issues, social justice, and the lives of black men and boys. But first, check out what happens when they erase our stories from history. Two men, one shared destiny. By the time the truth came out, one of them would be head of a billion dollar empire. The other, he'd be nearly erased from history, but only nearly. Because history has a way of creeping back into the present, right when we least expect it. Jack Daniels was a white man all over the place. He worked odd jobs for everyone, from preachers to whiskey makers in Lynchburg, Tennessee. When he showed an interest in distilling whiskey, he met a black man who would change the course of Jack's life and his family's life for generations to come. That man's name was Nearest Green. Born into slavery, Nathan Nearest Green was a man with a unique gift. He could whip up some good whiskey. The skill was a remnant of alcohol production from past African cultures that was passed down to Green. Around the 1850s, Green's enslaver, who was a mediocre distiller, forced Nearest to teach a young Jack Daniel all about the distillery process. Just like so many of our ancestors who have incomparable skills, Greens were also exploited. Daniel soon used Greens' expertise to build his own whiskey empire. For generations, Greens' children, grandchildren, and even great-grandchildren worked for the company built on the back of their forefathers' talent and did it without reaping any of the profit or the credit. Jack Daniel went on and told the world the story of how he worked for a busy businessman who showed him how to run a distillery. However, he hid the fact that Green was the man who taught him everything he knew. But again, history has a way of creeping back into the present. When 2016 came around, the truth was exposed. Jack Daniel's whiskey was the genius of an enslaved black man, not a hardworking young white man who got lucky on an odd job. 
Daniel's erasure of green was white supremacy at its finest. And just like Jack Daniel's recipe for whiskey, the recipe for white supremacy remains time-tested and unchanged. But what if we had the power to tell our own history? Perhaps we might ask the descendants of Nathan Nearest Green, who now own their own distillery affectionately named Uncle Nearest Whiskey. They reclaimed their history and their power. So ask yourself one simple question. What could happen when we're inspired to dream big by our history and tell our own stories? David, what does Black liberation mean to you? Oh, man, that's a great question. What does Black liberation mean to me? You know, it means to be free, right? Both in terms of, you know, free from persecution, free from oppression, but also free just to exist. Uh, I remember the first time I stepped foot in South Africa. I was in Johannesburg and I was walking the streets And it was the first time in my life that I just felt like someone walking in the street. Nobody was looking at me or racially profiling me. And I didn't realize until I was walking on those streets that I actually had been carrying for the entirety of my life this weight of just kind of being under surveillance, of kind of being, you know, what W.E.B. Du Bois would call kind of negotiating through this kind of double consciousness, always worried about how somebody's going to be looking at me or, you know, I'm a big black man or whatever the case may be, or how do I, am I being articulate? Am I, you know, am I, you know, how am I being perceived? Do I have to worry about, you know, getting stopped by the police or, or whatever the case may be? And I just was able to, to just kind of move as a, as a human being through the street. So liberation means just the ability to be free to just kind of, focus all of those energies that we expend on just having our guard up to a degree and just being able to be creative and move through the world and enjoy the world and experience the world as a human being. Free to exist. I appreciate that. So what would it take to get there? Well, you know, there's been a whole lot of obvious debate and discussion Uh, a lot of it disingenuous on the side of the conservatives about critical race theory, this idea that we live in a perpetually racist society, that our laws and our, you know, the, the, the things that govern us have been set up in this seemingly colorblind way, but that obviously situates Black folks in subordinate status. And that is, in fact, not just something that is circumstantial, but in fact, that is that is the goal. And Derek Bell, of course, who, who has now, you know, is now our ancestor, has now transitioned, made the argument that, um, who is, of course, the father of critical race theory, made the argument that racism is a permanent institution and we need to negotiate it as such. And I think in some ways, you know, a lot of people thought that was pessimistic, that thought, you know, that the goal should be to transcend race, to move past race. But I think just based on the way in which we have seen critical race theory be attacked, not as critical race theory, the actual theory and methodology, 
but as this kind of attack on diversity, equity, and inclusion that's masquerading as an attack on critical race theory. And I think in order to be, for us to move towards a kind of a racial liberation, we have to hold on to that reality that, hey, race is a permanent institution and that in order for us to exist and move in a space and be productive and raise productive, healthy children, we got to both right push against that constantly, uh, but also realize that those systems are not necessarily interminable, that they're not insurmountable, that there was a time before these things were in place and that they, they can be overcome. Doesn't mean that racism will somehow magically go away, because I don't think that it will. But it does mean that if you develop the right strategy, the right mentality, it can be something that can be eventually toppled, eventually overcome, eventually upset. So this idea that we have to reinforce the reality that race is a permanent institution and that with the right mindset and approach and strategy, we could overcome it. That's what I'm hearing. So right. can you uh, describe for me, how does your work get us towards that vision of liberation that you shared? Yeah, I think I've, first and foremost, I love Black people, right? And of course, when people say things like that, in a white supremacist society, the um, the immediate reaction is, well, wait a minute, what are you saying about white people? I didn't say anything about white people. I have any problem with white people, but I love black people. And the reason why it's important to kind of state that out loud is because our society has been set up culturally, ideologically, for us to not only despise black people, but for black people to despise, distrust, um, and even attack and assault each other, see each other as a problem, and to deflect our focus away from the real, the real challenge, the real disease, so to speak, which is white supremacist patriarchal capitalism, right? And I think my work is is designed in some ways um, to expose that, uh, to call attention to both black resilience, self determination, empowerment, but also to unmask the ways that white supremacist kind of, you know, that patriarchal capitalism masquerades as somehow universal, somehow loving, somehow highly intellectual, somehow normal, and that it is us who need to rise to the level of kind of this white standard in order to reach the heights of, you know, theater, art, right, the arts, engineering, sciences, right, that somehow we're the ones that are charged with, with right, raising our standards to this kind of standard of whiteness in order to achieve some type of, of equality. And all of it's really bogus. All of it's really a smokescreen, basically designed to obscure for Black folks our, our self-determination, our power, our genius. And so my work in some ways is all about trying to, in, in, in a kind of a larger context is to try to decipher that, try to explode and de- debunk many of those kind of ideas where we're talking about hip hop or, or, or the, the black presidents or gender relations or whatever the case may be. It is about trying to explode those types of institutions that 
would make us think that we're lesser than we are. I'm interested in your work on Obama and how it relates to the point that you were just mentioning, primarily, um, you know, as it relates, but also a big question of where does Obama's presidency fall in terms of black history, in terms of the grand scheme of things? Yeah, you know, it's one of those things, right? When you start thinking about something, you know, like that, it's, it's you know, uh, the significance of a, a, the Obama presidency. I think we're still, you know, as a, as a group, as, 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 as black folks, we're still processing it and the significance of it is still, you know, the, the, the history of that is still being written, Right. I think we're beginning to see, first and foremost, what it doesn't mean, which is to say it doesn't mean that somehow we've reached a new era of this kind of post-racial reality that that became this kind of hot topic whenever Obama was elected, and particularly when he got elected to a second term, and all the euphoria around thinking that somehow him being elected meant that race no longer was something that was central to the way that America does its business. And obviously the election of Donald Trump and in the kind of surge of a new iteration of white supremacy has uh, demonstrated that a lot of that was, was uh, just wishful thinking. I think Obama is significant though, in, a, in, 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 in ways that may not be obvious, more in a symbolic sense. For, for example, my daughter, uh, who is 16, the first president that she remembers in her consciousness was a black man. The first first lady that she imagined in her consciousness that was she was aware of was a black woman that looked like her aunt, that looked like her mom, that looked like the women in her community that looked like her. Right. There were two little black girls running around the White House that that ate the same types of food, played the same type of games, had the same type of hair texture and nose as she did. And so I think the fact that, you know, because when I was growing up, I'm going to be 50 this year, the eye, if somebody had raised the idea of a black president, it would be, it would usually be raised as a, some kind of punchline to a joke. Whereas that, that kind of thinking for my children would seem absurd. So I think it, the, the kind of the biggest impact that Obama's presidency had was there was a there's now a new generation, including a lot of white children who who see a black person being in charge, being the most powerful person in the country in terms of politics and even the ability to make very decisive decisions about war and conflict as as organic, as natural, as not crazy. And I think that's why. We have the resurgence of a, of a Donald Trump. We have a resurgence of white supremacy because there's an awareness that that whole thing that was set up to make black folks seem inferior or whatever is starting to crumble. And, and now all these anti-critical race theories, book burnings and, and banning of books and, and banning of, of teaching race and, and, and any type of thing that would challenge white supremacist dominance. That's why we see it's, a, it's kind of a desperation because of what that Obama's presidency and now uh, Kamala Harris uh, vice presidency, what that means to the dominance of white men in this in this country. Hmm. What do you think? And this is obviously speculation, but long term, 
effects of this symbolism? Uh, you just highlighted some of the short-term reactions. Mm-hmm. In your opinion, what could be long-term impacts of symbolism on, uh, for black folks and white folks? Well, I think that, um, and we've seen this here even recently, America, the United States as a country, is largely from our inception an experiment, right? Democracy, a democratic republic, that's that's actually an experiment. That's something that had never been tried before. And so in a lot of ways, we're still kind of figuring it out. And even after the Civil War, as those quote-unquote white forefathers were putting together the Constitution, and what this United States would look like, they did not, when they were saying all men are created equal, they were not envisioning a space in which there would be this type of racial diversity where black folks and brown folks would actually be citizens, even where women, regardless of race, would even be fully considered human beings and participate in that republic. So we we literally are a, a theory given to uh, a, a theory materialized, and and in and and what we've seen is that there are certainly cracks in that theory. There are cracks in that experimentation, and the, I think the next decade will be somewhat of a reckoning because a lot of the institutions that have been set up to educate people into a white supremacist mindset are being challenged in ways that are upsetting status quo power. And we have a very divided America. There's folks who are trying to move forward and see us as a diverse society. And then there are others who are holding on to that kind of white power structure that puts white ideas and values and power at the center. And so it's going to be really interesting to see moving forward what what type of America will emerge. Will it be one that can overcome this impasse, overcome this conflict and and reimagine ourselves away from this kind of white supremacist legacy? Or is it going to be something that is going to implode? And if you'd have asked me this question prior to January 6th or the Trump presidency even, I would have been very, very optimistic. Now, it, it, it you know, it's concerning. It is very concerning and concerning in ways that that I have never been concerned because the possibility of I mean, people are throwing things around like civil war and and not in any type of just kind of hyperbolic way, but like in a very legitimate uh, way. So we're we're at a crossroads as a as a republic. So it seems like you're getting at the things that make people who they are, right? These symbols, the history, these narratives around power and who's who in society. I'm interested in how you were shaped by history, by black history. You just spoke on, you know, as we're looking toward the future, let's take it to the the past a little bit. Mm. Do you recall how you were shaped by learning and understanding our history, um, you know, to a greater degree? Yeah, I, I remember, of course, like a lot. I'm, I'm from small town, North Carolina. You know, I was born in 72 and coming up in the in the 70s and 80s in small town, North Carolina meant that 
things like Black history were rarely taught in the school systems and that critiques of white supremacy, critiques of, you know, uh, the Civil War, of the Confederate flag, all these things were not only taboo to kind of engage, but they were also dangerous. So I grew up, you know, being kind of taught in school that, that, you know, Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, all these people were great, you know, American heroes and not taught that, you know, these were slave owners, that some of them did some of the most monstrous things imaginable to other human beings who were raced black. And it just, it really meant that, you know, I had, because you, you can't teach people that they have some kind of subordinate role in history that somehow where they come from in terms of Africa is primitive and backwards and that somehow even though slavery was bad, it introduced Africans to civilization and Western culture. And so, and it's over, so we shouldn't really even be be talking about it even as something that has any kind of impact on us today. And so that that had been largely a struggle for me for the better part of my formative, you know, years and my my schooling. And then about my sophomore year in high school, I, I was a part of this lead program. And this lead program I got to um it was kind of a pre-college program that introduced a lot of folks to all, all alternatives in business as potential majors uh, in college. And I got to go to Duke University and meet the John Hope Franklin. And just having a conversation with him, and I didn't even know who John Hope Franklin was, I, I'm embarrassed to say at the time, and just kind of being in the presence of of, of such a iconic historian and learning about my legacy as a as a as a as a, as a black american and being being introduced for the first time to people like Zora Hurston, Toni Morrison, James Baldwin, W.E.B. Du Bois and whatever it was it was life altering it was absolutely life altering and i realized at that point that i'd been radically miseducated that all these geniuses, all these black geniuses, all these kind of amazing people have been literally written out of my history or, or put in there as like, you know, cameos in terms of the larger kind of white structure. And so it, it, it empowered me and I've really kind of never looked back. So it's obvious that because of, of this, it should be that, that my intellectual pursuits are focused on kind of Black folks, Black culture, Black empowerment more specifically. As you were forming this deeper understanding of history, how were you feeling about yourself? You know, I think, I think, you know, I come from a working class background. My parents uh, dropped out of high school. There were not a lot of opportunities for them. My mom you know, she went back and got her GED and my dad went back and got some additional learning to enhance his education so that he could, you know, provide for our family. And so for me, you know, I kind of grew up in a space where we, you know, we grew up in a working class environment, but I went to school a lot of times with 
white kids who were middle to upper middle class. And I always felt absent this history in my knowledge that somehow maybe some of these things that, you know, were being said about black people being inferior or subordinate had some some real merit. I mean, you're looking around and all the people who are going to college, who live in the nicer homes, who have the educated parents, all this kind of stuff are white. And all the folks who are going to jail and who are being getting in trouble and dropping out of school look like me. And it's hard, you know, a lot of people don't say this, but it's hard when you have a culture that continues to push this narrative. And then you look around and you see all this despondency in your communities to really imagine that your opportunities are not somehow inextricably linked to race in ways that uh, will be ultimately to your disadvantage. So learning, I think, about my history, learning about the brilliance and the of, of black folks and our indelible, the indelible mark we've left on just about every major dynamic of American culture and academics, music, right, the arts in general, science, uh, it was transformative. And it made it made me feel like the dreams and aspirations that I had were not only achievable, but that I had underestimated what I could do, that I needed to dream bigger. And so, yeah, it was it was deeply, deeply personal. And as is my scholarship, it is it is, you know, I'm not just writing for an academic audience wanting folks to, you know, to, you know, give me all these kudos for having these kind of, you know, you know, this kind of intellectual productivity. I'm really trying to speak a certain kind of truth to power and represent for those other little Southern black boys who get uh, get written off. So the sense of empowerment that mm-hmm. you got from from really diving deep into the history that you didn't have prior to that, that's powerful. I think that, you know, all of us who who've been shaped by history can can speak to that as well. So I appreciate yeah. you sharing that. I'm curious, is there a certain legacy of black political thought or action or creative production that you see yourself as part of as you're thinking about, you know, the history and what you're drawn to? Is there a legacy that you see yourself as as continuing the work of? Yeah, I mean, I, I have a TED talk about whitewashing history and it centers on the way that we've been miseducated about you know, Black history in general, but specifically Rosa Parks, right? And the ways in which, you know, my son was taught, right? Even as recently as, you know, eight years ago, that Rosa Parks was this tired Black woman with tired feet who was asked to, you know, give up her seat on this Jim Crow bus. And because she was tired and old, she didn't give up her her seat and become became this kind of accidental hero of of the civil rights movement when of course we know that Rosa Parks had decades of experience as an activist that her parents were and grandparents believed in armed self defense that she was a big she was she was a major supporter of Malcolm X that she thought Initially, when she was introduced to the Luke, Martin Luther King's notion of nonviolence, that it was a bit absurd, frankly. 
because she had grown up with this idea of, of, of arming yourself and defending yourself and pushing back against kind of white supremacy that like literally we're kind of educated out of our long legacy of of empowerment of fighting back and i think it's for me um it's important for us to you know understand those legacies understand not only what that means for our past but for our present i i remember making my children memorize even at you know five and six years old poems like "Mother to Son" by Langston Hughes, and I re- and I and I and the reason why I did that was because I remember hearing a speech when I was in Knoxville some years ago uh, from Maya Angelou, and she was talking about how her son had gotten into this near fatal car accident and she had you know that's how she raised her kids to to memorize these these poems by these 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 black and 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 in some cases just radical activists and she she recalled that during you know a tough time where her son was in the hospital and suffering from various kind of temporary paralysis in his limbs that he looked like he was going to give up and she made him recite some of these poems with her and one of them was mother to son by Langston Hughes and that 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 recalling of those ancestors through those through that language right well son I'll tell you life for me ain't been no crystal stair right it's it's that was enough in and of itself to remind him that he could overcome that he could right survive you know that that very painful experience and that stuck with me and i've i you know i've tried to you know to transfer that on to my children so for me that is our legacy a legacy of resilience of brilliance of 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 folks that seemingly ordinary you know seemingly ordinary folks who end up doing these extraordinary things and not counting folks out whether we're talking about you know, some kid on the block that nobody thinks is going to amount to anything like a Big Smalls or a Jay-Z who end up becoming icons, global icons to, you know, you know, short, dark skinned queer black boys like James Baldwin, who, be, who became a voice of a generation of uh, folks. We just, you know, are constantly discounting who are absolute gems of our society and learning to not only to see those those gems in our society, but see those gems, you know, within ourselves. You've mentioned previously, you know, part of your introduction to Black history was through the work of an interaction with John Hope Franklin. Mm-hmm. Um, can you give a little summary of who Franklin was and build on that? Um, bigger question is, you know, why is it important that we take control of telling our own history? I mean, you know, John Hope Franklin was doing the work of, you know, kind of assembling, you know, you know, black history and building not only. And this is the thing that I think is so impressive about Franklin was 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 not only his obvious intellectual contributions, right, the history, the books that he wrote the stories that he was able to tell, the 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 activism that his that grew out of that history, 
but equally, if not more important, the mentoring that took place, that the, the people that he was, that he reached out to, that he helped to shepherd through the process, that he helped to demystify the process, the, the past that he cleared, right? He was, he was, he was someone that, that believed in giving back. He was as, you know, he was a race man, as the saying goes, right? Somebody who, you know, who thought of their talents and abilities as an extension of the community. So whatever talents I have, whether it's to play football, whether it's to write books, whether it's to write poems or novels or to make music, all of that would be in the larger service of building up my community, giving back to my community. And that's the type of historian, you know, he was. And I think that a lot of that, a lot of that energy has been kind of lost in our, you know, our, our current culture where we tend to kind of value, you know, you know, self-determination in ways that are tethered to capitalism and me-ism, right? Uh, about, you know, it's all about, you know, you being the individual and how much money or power you can acquire for yourself, even if that's at the expense of the community. And I think what was a hallmark of his legacy and the things that that made him so great was that he saw himself as an extension of that community and he held himself to a higher standard in terms of making sure that the things he did, he said that he wrote about would be to respect and uplift that community. Can you build on that? Speak more broadly, this this idea of us as a people being able to be the ones telling our history. And, you know, you mentioned previously, you know, we were and we have been taught that we come from a backwards land that, you know, was civilized by white people. Um, but when we tell the stories differently, can you speak to that some? Oh, this, what, what a great question. I mean, what an incredible question, right? And we've seen what happens when we're able to tell our own stories, right? From the series in Atlanta to there's the, the, the series Regina King did the has done a, a few really outstanding, iconic, instantly iconic pieces in which he's, you know, telling the story about, about black cowboys and the legacy of, of that, that, you know, inserts a particularly black way of, of moving and living in the world. That doesn't always have to be some kind of romanticized, you know, story about resilience and love. And we're complicated people. Right. We're we we have as many right complexities or whatever as any other group. And so it's not about necessarily telling always these uplifting stories in which black folks are always emerging as angels or heroic figures. But just to tell our stories with the type of care and, and complexity that others get to tell uh, their stories. at, and, and for a long time, we weren't able to tell those stories, whether we're talking about novels, whether we're talking about in movies or whatever, because a lot of those venues were economically controlled by white folks who had a deep investment in not allowing us to tell those stories or who otherwise just didn't think those stories were interesting or valuable. And now, as we've seen with the you know runaway success of Black filmmakers, 
you know, playwrights, novelists. Our stories are amazing. Our stories are powerful. And we need to tell those stories because there's ways in which obviously when, uh, and I'm thinking about something like, you know, the movies like, what's the movie with the, the football player or who, you know, has the, you know, his story of his, you know, have the white mother. Uh, we have oh, these, like I said, the blind side. The blind side. We have, <laughs> yes, right. We have like a movie like The Blind Side, which is supposed to be a black, you know, a black story, but that gets told from the perspective of a white character who becomes the center of that story. And that's typically how, you know, in the past, a black story would be told. It would really be a story that's about white people kind of in blackface where black folks would be featured in a seemingly redemptive way, but it really would be a white story. And so now we have, you know, films, the, 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 the film that Will Smith just starred in with about Serena. King Richard. King Richard. We see these movies that are, you know, the scripts are written by us. It's directed by us. We're, we're you know, you have to, the black actors, it, there's just something magical about being and empowering about being able to give to tell a black story from a black perspective, and I'm just I'm glad that we're we finally reached that point. I, I don't I don't think there's anything more powerful that that um, we can have than to be able to represent ourselves from our perspectives. It's funny you mentioned King Richard. I was thinking about that as you were speaking about the the blind side and how they did it in the opposite way they could have eaten king richard they could have easily had it where like the white tennis coach was the the white savior again right you know, they're like no this is the story about the williams family and king richard specifically and the work they did so right i can appreciate that you mentioned regina king as well she's been doing some incredible work as it relates to to this and amazing have you seen one night in miami I have, I have. Okay. I have. I, what are your thoughts on on that film? I mean, as it you relates know, to what we're talking about here. You know, the thing is, when you see films like that, told with that type of care, and where you get those types of interactions, it makes history alive. Um, I teach a lot of you know, 19, 20, 21, 22 year olds who think that the civil rights movement was 300 years ago, who don't realize that had Malcolm X not been assassinated, he would, he would just be an elderly man right now. He wouldn't be 150, right? Same with, with King, right? That many of these folks that were supporting white supremacist regimes are now running universities, are in the Senate, you know, can ascend and have ascended to the presidency. These people are very much alive and well. They were really only one generation removed from, maybe a generation and, and a half removed from Jim Crow. And I think it becomes very important that, you know, that when we start talking about that kind of a film that Regina King made, that these are not just things that are great in terms of entertainment. They are actually catalogs of history. They're actually, you know, necessary revisionist 
interventions that allow folks that otherwise may not pick up the autobiography of Malcolm X, right? Or, you know, you know, read the letter from a Birmingham jail, right? That they get to experience this type of thing on the big screen. And of course, you know, it gives black actors roles that they can play and they can they can put their heart and soul into it. It's not, you know, you're not some pimp or you're not some hustler or you're not some prostitute or you're not some welfare queen, right? We, you know, it's also important. It creates roles for us, right? That, that have, I remember when Viola Davis won for being a best actress and generated that controversy when she won and made that kind of historic, got that historic nod as best actress. And she said in her speech that she basically, this this was kind of a dubious distinction because she shouldn't be the first, given all the great Black women actresses that have come before us, that she shouldn't have been the first person to get that award. And that really the only thing that was standing in front of Black women getting those kinds of awards were basically white folks who weren't giving them the opportunities or writing roles or Hollywood that wasn't creating the opportunities for black folks to do the kind of things that Regina King is doing. And of course, she got a lot of flack from that because a lot of people didn't like the fact that she wasn't appreciative of the award, but she was absolutely right. And I'm glad to see that we've entered an era in which her words and those types of things can be fully appreciated for what they are. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm still waiting for the day, holding out for the day and contributing to the day when we can, you know, award ourselves in ways we find meaningful, you know, and set our own standards. So where those deep conversations don't even have to happen. Those Yes. Yes. Anything. But I get absolutely it. I, something you said stuck out to me around, you know, history is a living idea. I think a lot of what we've been discussing is how we've learned and how we absorb it. But how do we turn it into a tool? How do we get these stories, these narratives, and understand, as you mentioned, that a lot of characters of these stories are still alive. A lot of, most of, the, if not all of the issues are still alive, and we are part of that legacy. So how do we connect that all? How do we connect what we're learning to tools and action? That's a, that's a great question. Also, a very, very hard question. I'll, I'll kind of try to answer it in the way that, that, that I'm you know, thinking about it in terms of my own kind of experiences. Uh, I think first and foremost, our, the, the people we can empower the most, the group that we can empower the most are the children. I think if we can educate them and educate them when they're young about who they are, where they come from, um, before they get all of this pathological educational programming that that discounts their legacy, their culture, that that you know obscures Africa and deifies Europe and everything that's coming from the white west. Uh, if we can get them when they're young and educate them about who they are, I think that is probably the most significant type of contributions we can make. And, you know, as a parent, it was a full-time job trying to deprogram my children with the messages that they were receiving either at school 
or just in the public domain or also through television and social media. I've had to, you know, you know, I had to kind of, I, I wrote, I've, I've written about, you know, engaging my daughter on issues of black girls, beauty and colorism, having to like deprogram my son about masculinity and this whole kind of gangster mindset and thug mindset that, you know, that, that he, you know, had to unlearn based on the ways in which, you know, his boyhood and, 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 and now black manhood were, were, were given to him, right. And get him out of those kind of dangerous hyper-masculine performances all of those things are crucial to raising healthy children who will go on to be empowered and healthy, you know, citizens. And so I think the, 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 the work, the most significant work is with the youth and educating them and empowering them and creating, you know, models of empowerment and love and self-determination for, for, for them. So, yeah, I think that's probably the biggest, the most significant way that we can make black history. We can use it kind of as a tool to to empower black folks, black communities, not just for this generation, for generations to come. Yeah. Even as far as like, you know, some of the issues that you raised up, being able to look to the past and see how how were things done in the past? What can we learn and apply now we know, can't take everything with us, but those things that actually did work that we may not be as aware of, or may have forgotten in terms of practices or thoughts. Um, Absolutely appreciate that. Um, so you meant you touched on self determination a couple times here, and I want you to expand on that primarily, well, partially because the way that one of the ways we describe Black liberation and push Black is that ability to practice self determination, uh, and we speak of that as. Uh, from a community standpoint, and you you raised the question around how do we distinguish you know the community aspect from the individual self determination. So mm. uh, speak a little more about how you how you view those, and you know how that relates in your mind uh, or not to to black liberation. Well, I mean, one of the things that I think self determination looks like embodied, right? When we actually put it in actual bodies. It's about being able to not only make choices and have the kind of the freedom to make choices, but the but the the ability to dare. What is it? Audre Lorde says, when I dare to be powerful, to use my strength in the service of my vision, it becomes less and less important that I am afraid. And I, I want my children and I want black folks to dare to be powerful. But you have to. Those things have to be taught. You know, we'll, you'll see somebody that can rise up seemingly without that type of mentorship, you know, every now and then. But usually as a, as a community, you don't see a group of folks do those types of things in a kind of consistent basis where there's not community, where there's not a system in place to facilitate that. Shout, shout out to... Janice uh, Johnson, one of my dear friends who has a grassroots organization that that she set up to empower black girls, including her daughter, and, you know, generated the funding herself, came up with the concept herself, 
got fundraisers going, developed a, a summer school program. And now her daughter and that first cohort of, of Black girls from that grassroots organization are now all off to college. So there was they posted a picture on Facebook the other day of like nine girls that were in that program, all who are going to college and elite institutions who are just thriving. And, and that's what I that's what self-determination looks like. It's teaching folks that their their destinies, their plight is not somehow inextricably linked to what white folks think of them or to what a white folks, what kind of job a white person would give them or what type of, you know, hookup they can get or what type of favor they can generate, but that they can be the masters of their own fates that instead of thinking about themselves as people who work for other folks, they can think about themselves as creators of commerce, creators of opportunities, creators of institutions, right? I remember when people used to laugh at and poke fun at somebody like Kanye West, who, of course, I have a lot of problems with politically, but in terms of just his will to like, I mean, when he was saying things like, they're going to compare me to Walt Disney one day, Right. And 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 some of the, you know, Ralph Lauren and all these things. And I remember when he was saying that people were like, oh, who does this Negro think he is now? Ain't nobody laughing. Right. And there's ways in which obviously he has problematic politics. I think, you know, there's no de- debate in that. But the audacity to say, why? Why would you think as a black person that somehow comparing myself to Walt Disney or or Ralph, you know, Lauren or whatever, somehow that is far fetched. Right. That is not about that is not about me. That's about how we've been conditioned to limit ourselves, to not imagine that those are heights that we can aspire to, what we can do, what what we are capable of and how to facilitate that, how to make that a a cultural practice. All right. And just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel that that's important too. I mean, here you are at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter, and your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. Push Black exists because we realize we have to take matters into our own hands. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people give about five or 10 bucks a month, but everything makes it different. Thanks for supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tarek Alani, Patrick Sanders, Leslie Taylor Grover, Jerea Bradley, Brooke Brown, Siobhan Chapman, Tabitha Jacobs, Albany Jones, Brianna Lambach, Graciela Mayo-Latizzi, Courtney Morgan, Zane Murdoch, Aquia Tay, Tasha Taylor, and Darren Wallace. Producing the podcast, we have Marcel Hutchins and Sydney Smith. Joanna Samuels is our audio engineer who also edits the show. And Black History Year's executive producer is Julian Walker. Peace. <laughs>